And as you're finding your seats, you can turn to Judges chapter 13 as we uh, take a break from our Masterclass series. Uh, we're going to be speaking on some motherhood. And motherhood, I know, is difficult for, for different people on different days uh, based off maybe you lost your mother or maybe you've been through some difficult seasons in motherhood. And motherhood is one of these special gifts of God that comes in many packages. The gift is the same. A mother is somebody who, who can give birth to things, whether it's babies or purpose or promises or destiny or life. But they also nurture. They're nurturing and they can nurture babies. They can nurture children. They can nurture teenagers. They can nurture their husbands, for the lack of a better concept. But they also can nurture purpose and dreams. And so the gift of a motherhood is pretty consistent, but the package that motherhood comes in can vary in different forms. It can be a, a, a single mom, a young mom, an adoptive mom, a stepmom, a grieving mom, a, a mom who's lost children, a spiritual moms. It, it comes in many forms and fashions uh, with a package, but the gift is always the same. The gift is, is a woman who takes on the responsibility of someone else to see them accomplish what God has called them to accomplish. And so many of y'all know, know my story somewhat, and I'm going to share my testimony later on this year. But my, my family upbringing was very difficult, and I never really had, my mom was probably the best mom she knew how to be. But she wasn't the mother I actually needed. And so when I was about 14 years old, there was a woman that came into my life named Alicia Sharpton. And Alicia had this amazing ability to mother people no matter where they were. In a difficult season of my life, very complicated, she kind of came in and she became that spiritual mother to kind of steward what was inside of me, to bring it to the service, to nurture it, and allow it to come to fruition 10, 15 years later on. And so for Mother's Day, for me, it always brings back these memories, these conversations I had with Alicia Sharpton. And you'll see something like that here in Judges 13. It says this, starting in verse 1. It says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And there was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, it's, it's amazing that, that the angel doesn't talk to the husband because the husband was probably watching TV, so he wouldn't listen anyway. So he tells the woman, he tells, she goes back, a man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from. He did not tell me his name, but he said to me, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. And Manoah arose and went after, this is verse 11, went to after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And then Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to the, be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? That, that's very important. The child has not even been conceived yet, and the father's asking what's his mission, his purpose, his destiny in life. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or anything unclean. All that I commanded, let her observe. In verse 24, And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. 
And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Maneadan between Zorah and Eshtal. So it's an interesting story that in Israel there's this chaos going on. The people are no longer listening to God. They become desensitized to sin. They become okay or complacent in their own slavery and servitude. And they've gotten so caught up in the cultures of the world that they're so caught up in it, they're not even crying out to God anymore. Like That's a really bad place when, when you're so caught up in the culture, you never even cry out because you think the culture is God's will. And I think some of us maybe have got to the place where life is so bad, you just don't stop praying because you think maybe where you're at is just God's will. And the Israelites had gotten to this point, and God's response is even when they didn't cry out, God had a response to send a gift through a woman to a cry that had not even been cried. And I think in many ways you could see that we're probably in the same status in our culture. We're at a place where culture has become so common around us, we become so desensitized to the things of culture that many of us don't even crowd anymore. So how do you say that, Pastor? Because the prayer life of the church and the prayer life of people is no longer a cry of the heart. It's a, a quick blessing and move on. We ask God to bless the mess instead of deliver us from the mess. And so God's response was this baby named Samson. Samson is going to be a Nazarite from birth, which is a, is a covenant somebody makes with God to, to be used by God. He then goes on and he kills a thousand people with the jawbone of a donkey. So this is no normal sissy. He ties 300 foxes together. Now this is when you know his name may not have been Samson. It could have been Dennis the Menace. Takes 300 foxes, ties their tails together puts a torch in between their tails and gets them running through the cornfields of the Philistines to set everything on fire. So now you have this perfect, little, innocent baby gift from God who is an arsonist and is destroying everything around him. Then he goes on and creates a riddle and rap about him killing a lion. So now he's a rapper. So he's an arsonist, a rapper, and a murderer. And he starts doing all these things. And finally, he meets Delilah. He begins to marry Delilah, even though his, his family said he probably shouldn't marry Delilah. She's connected to the Philistines. He marries Delilah anyway and comes into all types of family drama with the in-laws where they actually kill him. If you think your wedding day was bad, just think about Samson's. And God decides to use him. But before God could use him, there had to be a woman who could hear God's voice, hold on to God's promise, and deliver God's promise. And what I think is very interesting in this story is we know the father's name is Manoah, but we don't know the woman's name. It's, it's never mentioned. And so the main character of the chapter is an unnamed woman. Lisa Turkis said this, said, overlooked by everyone, but handpicked by God. This, this woman, we don't know her name. We know her husband's name, but this woman is the one that God chose to meet with her with an angel to deliver a promise to use her to deliver Israel was an unnamed woman. And it made me think, how many unnamed women should we be grateful for for delivering the promises of God into our lives that we don't even know about or think about? 
And some of the women in the room need to know this, that even if you feel like you're unknown by everybody else, even if you feel like you're unnamed, if you're foreign, if no one thinks about you, you need to know that there's a place for you in the kingdom of heaven and it is not on the back row or in the back room of a prayer closet somewhere. God uses women to deliver his people and even if you feel like you're unnamed, God knows your name and he's chosen you to be an instrument of heaven. Even when she was unnamed. It's amazing. Manoah didn't do anything. He's named, but the woman's unnamed. But the woman is the main character and the most important person in this story. Even more important than Samson. And so I think we live in a day and age where it's all about platforms being known. But you know, you can be more powerful by being unknown than you can with a large platform on social media or YouTube or Facebook. And this woman is that one. And the point is this, mothers don't just birth children, they birth destiny. See, this this woman received this promise, not just for a baby, but the baby was a baby of destiny and purpose. And her job was to receive the promise, which came before she conceived the baby. See, the promise or the word of God comes before the manifestation of anything else. And she receives this promise or receives this word. She has to believe it. She has to hold on to it. She has to convince her husband of it. She has to cherish it. She has to take care of it. And she has to deliver it. And she has to nurture it for 18 years, even though this little rug rat is burning the house down. Like she does, And mothers have this innate created ability to birth something out of nothing. And it's not just physical it's spiritual. Like I could promise you, if we, if we did a survey, 98% of us in this room follow Jesus because of the ministry of a woman or the prayers of a woman or the influence of a woman. And women just have this ability to birth spiritual things even when the man is absent and, and can't even see what's going on. And so this baby before, see birth, the birth doesn't start at conception. Birth starts with the decree of the God. Like nothing happens without God's voice first preceding it. Creation, you look at it, it's here, but it didn't start until God spoke it into existence. He gives the promise and then conception happens and that conception is the destiny. And you need to know this, every single child before conception to conception carries the destiny of the kingdom of heaven within them. Every single child. But just as every child has a God-given destiny, every child has an assignment from hell to stop it. Every single one. It says this in Jeremiah chapter 1. This is, I think, Preston's life verse. It says this, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. I'm going to read that one more time. Before I formed you in the womb, before you were conceived, God knew you. Before you were conceived, he consecrated you. Before you were conceived, he appointed you a prophet to the nations. See, God had a plan for Jeremiah before his mom and dad ever had a plan for themselves. And what happens is that plan is innate in every single child, that there's this destiny, this purpose, this gift from heaven to earth in a package of a little bitty baby, and it starts before the mom and dad ever think of it. That tells me that every child is a child of God before they're a child of man. Now, what's sad about that is the enemy knows exactly 
what's going on. He knows that every single baby has a God-given destiny to reflect the image of heaven here on earth. And so the enemy's plan to stop it, he can't stop it once it starts because heaven, hell can't stop anything heaven starts. So his only opportunity is to stop these little bitty babies before they turn into big grown Samson's. And you see it with Moses. What's happening? Moses is about to be born. What's the enemy do? He has Pharaoh start to kill off all the Hebrew baby boys. Jesus, before Jesus is born, there's a promise from God to Mary. Before she's conceived, she conceives, she gives birth. What happens? Rome starts killing off all the babies in the territory. The enemy knows that the only way to stop the purpose of heaven is to stop the train before it gets rolling. That's why it's so sad to see sexual abuse of children. What is that? It's an attack of the enemy to cause trauma in the destiny of God before it can mature to a place to handle it. Abuse in a household, bullying, all the the sexualized culture of the stuff. We're sexualizing kids through Disney and elementary school and all this stuff. It's all the instrument of the the enemy to disrupt the God-given destinies upon kids before it gets rolling. And so she knew this, and so she has this purpose, and he says, tells her, you need to do the exact same things you need that child to do because you have to protect the purpose. As parents, we're protecting this purpose because this enemy is trying to uproot the gifts of God before they can ever form their roots in God. You see this today with, well, like I said, the sexualization of culture, with, with the abortion debate, and, and people will say, you talk about abortion in church, well, this is just too political. No, this is not a poli- abortion is not a political issue. It's a kingdom values issue. And I'll say, I'm not a political guy. Most of y'all know that. Some of y'all get mad because I'm not political enough. I'm not a political guy. I'm a kingdom guy. I don't tell you to vote for. I tell you who the king is. And he'll let you tell you what to do after that. But here's the sad thing. This has been going on since the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. There was a tree of what? Life and a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Also, you could say that's a tree of choice. Because the tree of knowledge of good and evil is now I have a choice between the two. And so the first kind of temptation was to stop living at the tree of life and valuing life and starting to value decisions and choices. And throughout the whole Old Testament, you see this whole thing where it's a fight between value of life and life in Jesus and life in God to then making our own choices and making our own decisions. And so this fight's been going on for 4,000, 5,000 plus years. And then what happens is you get to the New Testament and the church was in this culture that was so desensitized with Rome, it was so sexualized. Like they go to worship and worship was sexualized. They go to the, 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 all the foreign gods of, of Rome and Greece and they would sexualize their worship. And so whenever the, the passion of sex gets increased, but the value of, of the human life that comes from sex gets decreased, idolatry is what forms. And so the New Testament church was in this predicament where everything around them was sexualized. And so when the babies are being born, these people would literally throw their babies out on the street because they wanted the sex. They just didn't want the babies. And so the New Testament church, who had a kingdom value, they weren't Republicans or Democrats yet. They weren't in a democracy yet. They weren't in anything yet. They saw this is the kingdom of value of God. They started grabbing the babies off the street and raising the babies as their own children. 
The very first orphanages in the world were not formed by government, but were formed by Christians who had a value for the kingdom of life. You need to know this. In, in this whole debate, and I'm not commenting on Roe v. Wade or politics, I'm saying the kingdom value is this. Every child has a God-given destiny, and the enemy is seeking to stop it at any cost. And the value, the currency of the kingdom of heaven is not your voting power, it's not the U.S. dollar, it's not the euro, it's not the bitcoin, it's not anything else. The value, the currency of the kingdom of heaven is life, nothing more, nothing less. That's why God had to give, that's why God had to give life to redeem life because the currency is life. That's why the temple, they had to sacrifice animals because the blood was life. It's the value. It's the currency. See, what's happening is we're exchanging the currency of the kingdom right now for the currency of the world. The currency of the kingdom is life, the life of Jesus, the life of the believer, new life. It's all about this currency, and the world's currency is choice. And we're saying, well, well you know, I, I, don't, I don't want to be political, but I think I, need, I should have a choice. I should choose this. You can do that, but you're worshiping at the wrong tree. And when you worship that tree, the problem with that tree is that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you don't just get good, you also get evil. And you get the consequences of both. And I don't talk about this probably as much as I should, and here's the reason why. Because I know a whole lot of women, young and old, who have had abortions and live in pain and trauma and shame. And I feel like sometimes us and our political passions and our passion for life can cause a lot of damage to people God is trying to heal and to restore from pain, from shame, and from past trauma. And as the church, we have to be pro-life. It, the value is life. It's not just babies. That's why Jesus showed us the value is babies. The value is the leper. The value is the homeless. The value is the Samaritan. The value is those different us. The value is all the way through the thing. We have to be people that value life life. Why? Because in that life is packaged as God-given destiny. And he tells this unnamed woman, there's this destiny inside this child. And what's difficult is when a baby's born, you know, I joke, you don't see it when the baby's born. You're changing diapers. You got them crying during baby dedication because they're acting like their father, Aaron. And like, you're dealing with all this stuff. Like, like, it's hard. Like, dads don't see the long road. We're just tired. We don't want to change another diaper. I don't want to mix another bottle. I don't want to warm it up because every time I warm it up, you say it's too hot or it's too cold. Why don't you do it? Like, I don't want to do this. But a mom can hold a baby. And a mama can see its entire life. A mom can see its birth. It can see its destiny. It can see its purpose. It can see its promises. It can see everything because mothers have the ability to see potential that other people overlook. Mothers have this ability to see deep down the DNA fingerprints of God over their children's life, even when other people can't see it. Other people see Dennis the Menace. They see Samson burning down the cornfields. But no, this woman, she said, no, no, that's the promise of God. They see him slaying a thousand people with a jawbone of a donkey, which can't they get the man a gun or a weapon or sword or something? Like why are you having to use a donkey jawbone? He's slaying him. Everybody else sees a murderer. She's, he's a deliverer. See, moms have this ability to see something completely different. 
And when they see it, they begin to speak it. Mom, the greatest gift you have as a mother is not your compassion, is not your motherhood books you've read, is not the mother cohorts you're in. The greatest gift a mother has in her children's life, when I say children, spiritual children, adopted children, foster children, biological children, the greatest gift you have is your voice. In a world where everybody wants to speak down and negativity and tear down with the words, moms have the ability to build up with the words. We tell our kids, no one can tell you who you are except for your mommy, your daddy, and Jesus. And your moms have a louder voice than their dads do. Moms have a louder voice than the teachers and a louder voice than the coaches. It may not feel that way. It may feel like you're speaking to a deaf mute from the ages of about 12 to 25. But you keep on speaking. You keep on speaking. Because you're not speaking to them. You're speaking into them. Even if their ears don't hear it, it's planted in their heart. Because moms have this gift to do it. Alicia Sharpton talked about I was 15 years old. I'm talking about I am. I'd already been arrested twice by the time I was 15. And they live in a nice neighborhood. I come from the trailer park. They let me sit in their living room. I'm thinking, I've never been in a house that wasn't on wheels before. Like, this is a huge deal. Like, they let me hang out with their kid. And I'm walking through, and I'd fall in love with Jesus and hit this moment where I'm, I'm in between two worlds, to my old world and this new world. And I'm walking through Alicia's house in the living room. I'm walking through the house. And she's I'm walking through. She stops to Bobby. Has God called you to ministry yet? I had been feeling something. I didn't know what it was. I couldn't explain it. I didn't know how to say it. I've been dealing with it. And I just, I was a sports guy, so I was connecting. I feel like I'm a, a coach, but for like church people. Like that was how I thought about it because I didn't know what pastoring was or ministry was. All I knew is the church I was, I'd been to was a Baptist church. The pastor was, his dad was a pastor. His sons were pastors. Like I thought it was the family business. Like I just thought my dad's an electrician. I'm going to be an electrician. I thought it was a And she said, have you been called to ministry yet? And I was like, I remember saying, who told you that? She said, God did. I said, I don't know what that means, but here's what I've been feeling. She said, that's the call of God upon your life. She was able to see something other people had the inability to see. But moms also know, as this happened, see, the verse says that he's going to deliver the Israelites, but it says he's going to begin to deliver them, meaning he may not bring it to completion, but he's going to start this thing. And so she sees that he's going to begin or start to save Israel from the Philistines. She saw that in me that even when it may not come to completion, she saw God's call upon my life before it ever started. And what happens is so many times we think that we have to finish God's purpose right now. God is a multi-generational God. He is using all of us as part of these markers in time to transfer to one generation what the previous generation had learned. It's like when you pop, I love popcorn. I've been trying to go low carb and I travel, and when I travel, I stop and get zingers, fudge rounds. If it's chocolate, it's at the gas station, it's mine. That's kind of my rule. But if I'm at home, I eat microwaved uh, kettle corn is what I go to. It's amazing. I'll put the popcorn in the, the microwave. I hit the popcorn button, which still is like voodoo to me. I have no idea how this thing works. You push the popcorn button, and it starts to pop. But it starts, it's all the same temperature in the microwave, all the same oil in the bag. It's all the same thing, all the same type of kernels, but like one will pop, and two will pop. Then three or four or five, six, and then, the, and then it'll start to die down. There's a few later on, two, three pop up, and then, and then it shuts off. And I still don't know how the microwave knows it's done, but it's done. 
But what's amazing is all the kernels are in the same oil, in the same temperature, in the same environment, in the same place, but some pop early. Some pop with everybody else, and then some pop late. Or you can say it like this way. They're all in the same environment. They're all in the same place. They're all going to the center of the same thing, but they all have different maturation rates. Some are early bloomers. Some are late bloomers. Some are just blooming in the middle. And moms have this ability to say, even though he's not popping yet, he's still going to pop. We all know the guy that popped when he was in eighth grade, had a mustache, he dominated basketball. By the time he's 18, he looks like a midget. Some bloom early. Some bloom late. Some bloom with God early on. They get saved early and they live a life of obedience. Some are Samson. They're burning the house down. They're tearing people up. They're killing people. But right before they die, all of a sudden they get saved and boom, they go to heaven. That's a late bloomer. Moms trust the process of the microwave. They see the potential and they trust it, knowing that God will be faithful to the promise he gave them when they first held their baby. But moms don't just trust it. Moms, you're the influence as a mother is the most powerful thing in the world. Do not waste it. Marissa, Pastor Marissa talked about this. Your influence as a mom is so powerful. Don't waste it. Your children are watching you. If you want your children to be who you want them to be, you have to be what you want your children to be. If you want them to be Jesus followers, guess what? You may want to follow Jesus. If you want them to be prayer warriors, you may want to let them see you be a prayer warrior. Whatever you want your children to be, the mom is the greatest influence. Don't waste it on sports. Don't waste it on leisure. Don't waste it on hobbies. Don't waste it on anything else but the kingdom of heaven. Because what's interesting in this story, like he tells her he's going to be a Nazarite. He's going to be a Nazarite. But in order for him to be a Nazarite, you have to be a Nazarite. Now, that's interesting because she doesn't have the promise. She's not going to be the deliverer. He's going to be the deliverer. But she has to do all the precursory things to get him there. She has to do. Now, I think the reason she tells the mom and not the dad is because of this. As dads, we're great at playing with the kids. We aren't that great at parenting them. And you may say, well, that's very sexist. No, that is a fact. I feel like I'm an okay dad, but Toy is a much better parent than I am. Even when the kids were young, they were young, she was tired. We had three ki- four kids under the age of four. She needed to go to the grocery store just to get a break. And now she finally admitted, said, when the kids were young and went to the grocery store, I'd walk real slow. <laughs> I said, I thought that just took four hours to go to the grocery store. Like, I didn't. So one time the kids were young, she said, listen, I'm going to the grocery store. She didn't tell me before. I said, I'm going to the grocery store. I need you to watch the kids. I said, they're my kids. I got this. She said, no, I need you to watch them. I said, I'm a good dad. She said, no, I need you to watch them. She said this, do not go to sleep. I was like, it's like 2 o'clock. I'm not going to sleep till late. She said, do not. And so, you know, a mom's tone is it gets more serious, even with grown people. It gets a little bit deeper, a little more knife-like. I said, it's cool. I got this. She pulls out of the driveway. I turn the TV on. I don't know if it was five minutes or ten minutes. I was gone. I was asleep. Next thing I know, could have been four hours, could have been four minutes, could have been four days. I don't know how long it was. I hear tires pull back into the driveway, and I hear the words, do not fall asleep. I think to myself, I'm dead. So I get up, I start trying to track the kids down, which four kids under the age of four is like rambling kittens, and I'm looking for them. And I find them, they're having the time of their life. 
So I would like to say before I even finish the punchline that Toy is a much better parent. I'm much more fun, much more fun. I find three little girls with shoulder-length hair caked in Vaseline. Now, I'm, I'm an optimist. I'm thinking, well, maybe, just maybe, they figured out a new way, a better type of hair cream. <laughs> Our kids are mixed. Maybe this is the perfect thing for their grade of hair. Like, I'm trying to figure it out. I don't know. Toy comes in. She sees it. Her first words is, you fell asleep. I said, no, ma'am, I did not. <laughs> See, mom, if, if, if this angel would have told Manoah, hey, I need you to be a Nazarite, purification, cleanliness, separation, consecration. I need you to be the Nazarite. Samson would have never made it. <laughs> Manoah would have fell asleep. He would have went on a long vacation. Some would have, but he told the mom because moms have this way of taking on the joyful responsibility of motherhood in ways dads don't. It's a sacrifice. Like they get up late. They get up early. They're in the midst of it. They carry the emotions. They carry the passions. They carry the destiny of their kids. And he, so he gives her the promise. And the Nazarite vow is not a little thing. So it started in the Old Testament. Nazarite vow is nothing more than this. It's saying, I'm going to commit my life for a season to making sure God's kingdom comes. It was a vow, almost like a fasting season. So they'd say, for this amount of time, for six months, for a year, I'm going I'm to make this commitment to God. I want him to use my life, so I'm going to set myself apart for a special purpose. And there's three kind of components. One is devotion. They make this covenant. Nazarites make a covenant with God for a certain amount of time. The problem is Samson is a Nazarite from birth, meaning he'll never not be a Nazarite. From the womb to the tomb, he's a Nazarite. The second thing is separation. They separate themselves from, from common purposes to be used by God for special purposes. And so much so, it's, it's interesting, you keep hearing over and over again in Judges 13, is don't drink any, anything from the vine. No strong drink, no wine, nothing. Because they're separating, they're dedicating themselves to the things of God and away from the things of the world. What's even more interesting is the Nazarite vow, they couldn't even eat grapes or eat raisins because it could possibly get fermented if it's set around too long. And the vow was so strong, I'm not even going to get close to being tempted by anything that detriments his vow. And so this mom this takes on that same vow. And the last one was this cleanliness or this purification that they couldn't even get around dead bodies. So if you go to the funeral, you couldn't come into the room because there was a dead body in the room. And the point was this, that Nazarites go above and beyond the culture so they can change the culture. They go above and beyond the culture. The culture, they, oh, little drinking's okay. You know, this is, that's how Israel was. They were caught up in the whole, and this, no, no, if you're going to change the culture, we need to go above and beyond the culture. It's just show them there's a different way. And so this Nazarite vow is given to Samson before he even had a choice. He takes on this, he can't cut his hair, so he has these dreadlocks. But what's more interesting is the mom, the unnamed woman, carries the same vow. What that tells me, mom, is your children's purpose is hitched to your wagon. Your children's destiny is connected to how you walk out your purpose on earth. Your kid's destiny is more strongly connected to how you live than even how your husband lives. Because we've all seen husbands that live like the devil, but little mama brings all three of her little kids to church by ourselves. Why? Because there's something about a mama who lives the way she wants her kids to live. And Samson had it. She lived it 
above and beyond the call of duty. She lived it. But at some point, it goes down later on, it says, he was stirred by the Holy Spirit, or he was moved by the Holy Spirit, the King James says. He was moved by the Holy Spirit to start going this way. Moms, at some point, they've walked it out, they've stewarded it, they've taken care of, they've nurtured this destiny for years. There comes a point where a mom has to trust the Holy Spirit more than herself. And it says, as praying mothers trust that the Spirit of God can carry their children higher, faster, and farther than they could ever carry them. Now, I don't know this unnamed woman. I don't know what her thought process was, but I'm thinking, I knew this boy before he's ever thought of. I was barren. I couldn't have children. The angel called, came and told me his purpose, gave me a promise, and gave me a command to walk out. I've taken care of this little rug rat for 18 years, and now he wants to leave? And at some point, she realized the Holy Spirit stirred him. And with all moms, I think one of the most difficult, we've kind of hit this season in our family with Alicia going to Auburn, is at some point, you can't be the helicopter mom. You can't control their destiny. You have to trust their destiny to God. And praying moms are these moms that say, let the Holy Spirit take you. Let the Holy Spirit move you. And I trust that even in the times when he's murdering a thousand Philistines or he's burning the cornfields, even in those seasons that God is moving him and using him. And God has his ultimate plan that he's unpacking before their lives. And moms have to have this ability that your greatest voice outside of your voice to your kids is your prayer life to God. And moms have to be these intercessors that know that as I pray, the hand of God moves. When I pray for my children, the Spirit of God moves and he moves my kids. That they may seem far away, but they're not far away from God. And as the Holy Spirit moves, he begins to move my children from my embrace to the Father's embrace. It's interesting. Years ago I heard a sermon. I can't remember who preached it. He talked about eagles when the eaglets get about 10 to 12 weeks old, that's when it's time for them to start learning how to fly. So the eagles are in this huge high nest. And what he said, you don't realize is these nests are super comfortable, soft places for these little baby eagles. But as they start progressing in age, the mom actually makes the nest more uncomfortable. She starts removing all the soft things out of the nest. Because around 10 or 12 weeks, she'll actually begin to push her babies out of the nest. Like, they call them fledglings, which to me sounds like teenagers. They're fledglings. They throw them out and they fledgle, or whatever the term may be, out of the nest to land on another branch. So they always, these moms place their nest close to other branches or cliffs so that when they push them out, they won't fall. They'll just fall to another level. And that's how they teach these eagles how to fly, by watching the mom fly over them. And as they push them out of this uncomfortable nest, that's where they learn how to fly. In the same way, this mom is trusting the process that as she's been the example, as she begins to see the uncomfortable, you may not know this, but teenagers are uncomfortable for everybody. And so what it is, the nest is starting to get too small for the future eagles. And what happens is, is the same way the Holy Spirit begins to move, that you trust that as my children begin to launch out of the nest, the winds of the Holy Spirit will carry my children wherever the Holy Spirit wants them to go. I would love for that to be right here with me, but this world is God's playground. And wherever he wants to take my kids, his winds can blow and take them because I believe it's seeds of a dandelion of the kingdom of heaven because we are a kingdom family. 
that the seeds of the dandelion will be blown across all of America to plant new kingdom families, to saturate this earth with kingdom values, kingdom purpose, and kingdom direction. How do you know that? My spiritual mom, Alicia Sharpton, who our oldest daughter, Alicia, is actually named after. And she's seen me. She saw me fall off the horse. I went in a different direction. I'm off in the Air Force. She just let me go. She would touch in. She was very encouraging, very faithful. There came a point where me and Toya were together, and I'm going to share my testimony later this year, but the night that Toya pretty much was just done with me as being just ungodly, everything else, that Toya and Alicia Sharpton prayed. Alicia, my spiritual mom, and Toya, who thinks she's my mom, prayed together all night long. All night long. And in the middle of them praying, God moved the hand of the universe, allowed for his Holy Spirit to come into my life in a factory in Northeast Ohio to reveal in a supernatural way Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus wanted me more than anything else. And the only reason why is because two women trusted that the Holy Spirit could carry me higher, farther, and faster than they ever could. And so on this Mother's Day, I want to encourage you moms. You don't have to be the wind, just pray for the wind. You don't have to be the wind, just pray for the winds of the Holy Spirit to carry your children higher, faster, and farther than you could ever dream or imagine. And be, not the unnamed woman, be the named woman who cherishes and mothers the destiny that God needs in this earth to be the deliverers of an entire generation. If you would, just bow your heads, close your eyes, just one quick second. I just want to pray. If you're a mom, I know we've done this, but would you just please stand to your feet? I just want to pray over you this morning. So if you're a mother in this room, just please stand up. I just want to share this with you real quick. I, I believe one of my life callings is to empower women in the kingdom of heaven. I believe they've always been empowered, but at some point, church structures and human organizations begin to take away power from women to give it to men. In the kingdom of heaven, Galatians 3.20, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. As some of you, may, maybe you felt like un, unnamed women. Maybe you've been overlooked. Maybe you feel like your kids overlook you. Maybe your spouse overlooks you. Maybe culture overlooks you. Maybe the church has overlooked you at times. And you just felt like you didn't have any value. I want you to know, even in your unnamed moments, you still carried extreme value and currency in the kingdom of heaven. And as a, as a pastor, I, I'll say this probably, I repent for any and other pastoral leaders, church leaders that tried to make you unnamed. And I recognize you in this room. I recognize your faces. I recognize your names. I want to see you be everything God has called you to be and do everything God has called you to do. I want to empower you until empowerment it wears you down. But I also want to see you be the mom's of destiny in a world with all types of debates on politics, on abortion, all these things. You have chosen to give life, to steward life, to protect life, and that is not an easy task. And I just pray for the anointing of heaven upon you to be birthers and carriers of destiny. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for mothers, Father. I thank you for my mom. 
I thank you for her trying her best to be the best mom she could possibly be to me. I thank you for her stepmom, Lisa, Father, for trying her best to come into my teenage years and, and be stability and, and foundational in my life. Father, I thank you for Alicia sharpening her ability to see in me what I could not even see myself. Her belief in me, her love for me, that was unconditional. Father, even for Toya, Father, the mom she's been to me to help me grow and mature, even in adulthood to help me process, to help me become who you've called me to be. Father, I thank you for these moms in this room. And I just pray for the anointing, just like you gave Manoah's wife in the scripture, anointing to hear your voice, to know your voice, and to speak your voice into their children's lives. Father, whether that's young moms, older moms, grandmoms, spiritual moms. Father, I'm praying for a bunch of spiritual moms to raise up in this church. Father, I'm reminded of Trey Croom who spent years here in college, went to Dallas Theological Seminary to pursue his calling and chose Tony Evans Church because he had spiritual moms that checked on him every single Sunday. Father, I'm praying for spiritual moms who see destiny in this church, who steward and nurture destiny and release destiny in this church. So Father, for all these moms, I just pray for that anointing to fall upon them. I pray for the spirit of encouragement, Holy Spirit, to encourage them, to edify them, to exhort them, to not give up in the middle of the planet. Father, every single destiny of God has different maturations and different expiration dates. And Father, I pray for faith to believe and trust in you for the fulfillment of the promises of God, which are yes and amen. Father, I pray for the spirit of an intercessor to rise up within them, to declare your promises, to intercede, to stand in that gap for their children, to stand between them and the culture that seeks to destroy them. Father, I pray for spiritual moms that stand in the gap and declare that this too shall pass and the promises of God will come to fulfillment. Father, I pray for the moms who have lost children. Holy Spirit, I just pray that you're the comforter. You're the healer. You're the restorer. You bring purpose. You bring passion back into their lives. For for these moms that have lost moms, lost that influence in our lives. I just pray for peace. I pray that you be the comforter, even in the middle of the grief, you become the comforter and turn all that seems evil, turn it into good in Jesus' holy name.